You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 150. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. This week, we're going to take a look at Brookfield Infrastructure's recently accepted acquisition of Interpipeline. Brookfield first made its offer in February. It was initially opposed by Interpipe's management and faced a competing bid by Pembina Pipeline. Now it appears that the acquisition is going to proceed, and we will discuss if this is a good deal for Brookfield infrastructure investors. Brennan will be taking a question from longtime podcast listener Dave on CareRx. CareRx is a provider of pharmacy services to seniors' homes. Dave would like to hear our analysis on the stock and how it stacks up against Keystone's investment criteria. By now, most of you have noticed I am not Ryan Irvine. Ryan will be away this week, and I'm taking on his duties as the host of the podcast. (laughs) Yes, yes, hold your applause, please. However, Ryan will be back next week to resume his hosting duties. A a little extreme, but I I can certainly understand. As always, I have Brennan here with me. Brennan, a little little different today. I I believe this is the first podcast that Ryan has not hosted. Wow, well done, Aaron. You did yourself there. Ryan's going to listen to this and he's going to be shocked. Good job. I I like that, the cheering and the booing. Because, I mean, we're going to be cheering and booing. Or we're cheering right now, I guess. And we're going to be booing when he comes back. You know, it, oh, well, absolutely. I mean, the, this whole podcast is going to talk. We're just going to be talking about Ryan. Forget about stocks, right? It's finally my turn to rip into him a little bit. Perfect. That's what I like to hear. And on that note, what do you have to say now that Ryan's not here? Um, You know, well. He's... Don't hold back, Brendan, please. <laughs> well, you know, we've really been holding the fort together, me and you, at Keystone. Uh, you know, we, we do all the hard lifting. Um, Ryan just kind of, you know, sits around, goes on holidays all the time. Um, you know, don't, don't you agree though? You kind of have the same. Outlook? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you know, Ryan, he, he takes a holiday like every 10 years or 15 years or something. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty ridiculous. Yes. But, uh, yeah, he'll, he'll be back. He'll, he'll be back next week to, to hear, hear everything that we have to say about him. So, uh, if you don't say something interesting, Brennan, then I'm going to dub some, pretty harsh comments in with your voice fair enough fair enough good, yeah i also good. uh it's also going to be interesting next week i get my cfa results on the 3rd of august so uh so listeners can wait for that i don't know if it's going to be good or bad um the level one results just came out uh this week i guess and um only 25 percent of candidates ended up passing uh the first level so definitely setting a pretty high bar this time so uh, we'll see hopefully Hopefully I uh, I pass, but uh, if not, 
can, can always take it again. And so this is this is level two. This is level Correct. two that you've just taken. Right, right. Correct. So yeah. I remember level two. Level two is generally considered to be the hardest of the three levels. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the when I did mine, the pass rate was around 30%. So 70% don't pass. Yeah. Right. So uh, you're yeah. a brave man, Brennan. Crazy. You're a brave man. Mentioning that you. the results Thank are coming well, I'm out I'm trying next to live week. up to you, you know trying to live up to you you already have your cfa which uh you know is a great achievement and yeah i want to get it eventually and yeah hopefully i hopefully i pass and uh either if i pass or not listeners will hear or hear about it next week well they'll so hear from you one last posted. time anyways <laughs> <laughs> oh i get the can hey yeah if i don't pass, no no we oh, we, we we appreciate brennan regardless of whether or not he he has a cfa lots and of i appreciate uh, hearing that yeah, lot, lot, lots of work needs to be done cleaning the uh, cleaning the facilities here. So Brennan will always have always have employment yep. at Keystone. And Aaron likes his coffee, so you know multiple trips back and forth between the the coffee pot and Aaron's office. You there know, you go. Just there you go. Running back and forth. <laughs> all right, all right. So I think that you have a couple of questions. Yeah, for yeah, so us. I have a couple of questions. I've got two questions for our Ask Us Anything segment. The first I'd like you to uh, to answer, and then I can answer the second one, and then maybe you, you have some comments on it as well. So the first one, the first question came in from Braden, and essentially he just says, how do I determine how much debt a business can borrow, essentially? So can you take that away? Certainly, certainly I will. Well, that's a good question. Um, Understanding the financial position of the debt leverage of a company is is a very important part of analysis. You can't consider yourself knowledgeable on a company if you don't know how it's capitalized, how much debt there is, uh, how much cash there is. So, but it's it's not it's it's not necessarily when you're when you're doing an analysis of a company's debt leverage, you really have to consider what type of a business you're dealing with because that's going to influence. Um, the numbers that you're looking at or the target ranges. So there are ratios that you will use to, to analyze debt. And a few of the common ones might be a debt to equity ratio. Um, you might be a, a net debt to EBITDA ratio. So um, what, is the, what is the ratio of the company's net debt, debt minus cash relative to its EBITDA, which is similar to its, its operating earnings. Uh, and these give you an idea of how leveraged a company is going to be. But depending on the industry that the company is, and how stable the cash flow, how how visible the cash flow is going forward, that's what's going to determine uh, what's an appropriate ratio. So, for example, if you're looking at a highly cyclical company uh, where there's a low low visibility cash flow in the future, you don't really know how much cash flow you're going to produce a year or two from now because maybe uh, it's your cash flow is based on commodity prices or you're in a highly cyclical industry that can enter a downturn. You need to generally carry less debt because there's so much more uncertainty. So when you look at, at a, a company like that, generally, if there's a lot of uh, volatility in the underlying business, we don't really want to see much of any debt. We want to see you know, low ratio. Certainly on a net debt to EBITDA, you know, probably less than 0.5, definitely less than one if you're talking a very cyclical, if you're talking a very cyclical uh, industry or commodity sensitive industry. But I would say as a general target, maybe around less than, than net debt to EBITDA of one times. Um, now, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, 
and you look at companies where there's high visibility of cash flow, uh, maybe their their business is contracted, they work on multi-year contracts, so they know what the revenues and cash flow and earnings are going to be several years in the future. There's a lot, not a lot of exposure to um, commodity prices or to overall economic activity. Companies like that in the utility space, um, in some real estate rental uh, businesses as well, like say apartment REITs, um, other types of REITs, those companies are generally able to carry higher amounts of debt. Uh, so what is a higher amount of debt? Well, certainly, you know, when you're looking at utilities and net debt to, to EBITDA of, you know, four, four to five times for some of these businesses is not inappropriate, depending on how visible their cash flow is. And then, of course, there's all sorts of companies that are going to fall in between the extremely cyclical to the extremely defensive types of businesses. Uh, but you really have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, one of the things that I do when I'm looking at a company is I, I compute the ratios, the debt ratios on that individual company. So the, the, the debt equity, the net debt EBITDA, maybe the interest coverage ratio, a few other ratios. And then I find comparables in that same industry um, and I essentially just just compare like what what types of ratios do other companies in that same industry um, have and um, just kind of make that comparison. And if the company I'm looking at has lower leverage ratios relative to competitors, and that's a good indication, everything else equal, that the balance sheet is in good shape. If they're uh, much higher than the industry overall, then you're looking at a company that is potentially over leveraged. And certainly, even if the underlying business is good, the profitability, the cash flow, the growth is good. If there's too much debt on the balance sheet, that's a major risk that you have to consider. And that alone, if the balance sheet is extremely over leveraged, that alone can be a reason not to purchase a company, even if you like all other parts of the business. Perfect. That's actually something that you taught me as well when I first, uh, you know, came to Keystone. Is um, I was analyzing a business. Was I was only looking at the debt to equity ratios. Essentially, um, I saw that a company had a high debt to equity ratio. Basically, made the pitch that this company was highly levered. Um, and then you essentially came in and kind of took me under your wing and showed me, you know, not necessarily Brennan, you know, looking at the net debt to EBITDA, um, this company was actually under one, I believe at the time, um, debt actually doesn't look that bad, you know, they can service it going forward. Um, so yeah, that's a good, you know, definitely a good tool to have that net debt to EBITDA. And I mean, listeners are, you know, pretty familiar with it, but it is good that you're giving those ranges, um, you know, that are different for a cyclical industry or, you know, a defensive industry. Of course, but yeah, that's perfect, Aaron. And and what, another thing that I'll just mention on that because we, we did talk about the debt to equity. So when you're looking at the balance sheet, the the asset values listed on the balance sheet are not necessarily the the asset values that you would say get in in the market if you were to sell those assets. Um, they're the way that the accounting works is that they're they're um, listed at a lower of cost or market. Um, so a lot of times they don't really reflect the, the true value of the assets. Now, oftentimes I would probably consider it maybe an overstatement of the true values of the assets. Sometimes it could be an understatement. But you know, doing a debt to equity, it's certainly it's one ratio to look at. Uh, it's it's a good ratio to look at. Um, but there are cases where a company may have sustained. You know losses, or maybe there's been some accounting items that have really reduced equity. But now, given where the business, the trajectory of the business is now, um, they're starting to build that equity back up, and it's really looking forward that that is important. So um, that that's just the point to make is that you can't really take 
you can't you certainly can't take these balance sheet figures um you know at face value certainly on the asset side on the debt side certainly they're they're closer to the what the actual actual liability is yeah good point okay so our second question comes in from derek um and he says do you believe that higher customer satisfaction leads to higher stock performance so i think i can take this away unless you have anything to add to this one no go ahead and then i'll i'll make some comments after Perfect. So, so essentially, I would say that there is a better chance for higher stock performance uh, if customers have higher satisfaction with the business. But by no means is it would it be guaranteed. Now, just because a company provides a great product, it doesn't mean that the company's management team can execute and grow the business efficiently. Now, overall, what I think is key here is to understand any business or potential investment from the customer's perspective. Now, a real world example uh, would be on a company that uh, I've kind of been following recently and I've been hearing a bit of it in the news is on Venture Point Diagnostics, VPT on the TSX Venture. Uh, So this company has essentially developed a 2D cardiac diagnostic tool, which is a cheaper and quicker way to scan the heart. And uh, this competes with the more expensive and lengthy process of the MRI. Now, um, one thing that Venture Point is having essentially issues with, and management has even talked about these issues, is that they're trying to get hospitals and clinics to adopt its products. So from afar, it only seems logical that hospitals and clinics would want to adopt Venture Point's scanning device, but placing ourselves in the shoes of the hospitals and clinics, they're forced to take on costs on training technology or technologists with the new equipment and overall just veer away from the MRI machines, which they are just used to using uh, in the past. You know, it's kind of hard to to adopt something that's completely new, even if it potentially is more efficient. So although cardiologists have had high satisfaction with how VentryPoint's product performs, management's inability to get hospitals to adopt the product could hold back the stock from positive stock performance. Now, I believe that uh, VentryPoint actually got a, a deal with uh, GE where they're kind of going in their uh, incubator process where um, they're going to try to help sell it. But again, this is no means that ho- hospitals are going to adopt the product. And just because you know it has uh, had good performance, um, I think that it's a tough sell to get hospitals and clinics to take it on when they're so used to you know just using MRI machines. So yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just expand maybe on what you said here in a general basis. When you're looking yep. at a company, you, certainly you want it to have a product or a service that has good um, customer customer satisfaction. Uh, that's one of the basic criteria. I suppose you could think of some examples uh, where a where there's there, there's almost a monopoly in place or there's such a competitive advantage in place where the product the service does not have good customer satisfaction but customers still have to spend money on it um, so there are some situations where that that could be the case but as a basic level you want it to be a good product that customers like however being having high customer satisfaction doesn't necessarily speak at all in terms of like what the profitability of that product or service is, or as you said, the skill of the management team, or what the um, what the balance sheet, the debt leverage looks like, um, or or what the competitive forces are in the future. So you may have a product that customers like right now, but it's something that competitors can easily emulate. So I would say that's a starting point. It's important to know 
um, what the product is, what the service is, and, and what customers are saying about it when you're doing your research. But that's certainly not the only reason to buy a stock. I would never buy a stock just because the customers liked the product or service. I would, I would use that as a starting point. Uh, then I would make sure that there's a good company behind that because you could have a great product. You can have a, a, a technologically superior product and we've seen this in the past, and still get outcompeted by an inferior product just because they have better organization, better marketing, uh, or, or better reach, or or whatnot. So, um, you know, one of the things that people can do and that we do is if you're researching a company, just go and look at what the reviews say online and try and find as many reviews or as many customer comments as, as possible and just see what people are saying about them. Now, you have to take some of these reviews with a grain of salt and you just you it's 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 a source of information it's not necessarily something that you um can rely on completely but that's one way of of getting of getting a basic understanding of of how happy customers are with the product um i just wouldn't make that the only it's it's one it's one it's one criteria in in a long list Exactly. And that is actually a good point. Looking at reviews, like there's a company that we have under coverage that uh, provides an application. And, you know, we've actually like looked and tried to dig up reviews on that specific application to see, you know, is it what management says? Um, so, yeah, that's that's a good point that you made there. Good, good. So let's get into our Your Stock, Our Take section here. We have two companies. I'm going to start off here by talking about a story that's been in the news for the past several months. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. That is Brookfield Infrastructure's pending acquisition of Interpipeline. Brookfield Infrastructure, uh, the symbol is BIP.UN on the TSX or BIP on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, there's also another class of shares that investors can buy, BIPC, uh, which traded a premium but offers some tax advantages. We're going to be focused on the BIP.UN, the Canadian listing. Uh, price of $67 right now. The market cap of the company is about $20 billion. So this is one of the larger Canadian listings. And it has a yield right now of about 3.6%. So the background, anybody who's been following Keystone's research for any period of time knows that Brookfield Infrastructure has been one of our longstanding income stock recommendations. This is a global infrastructure company with a portfolio of assets that produce stable cash flow to support growing income distributions. These assets include things like ports, railways, data centers, toll roads, and any energy infrastructure. We originally recommended Brookfield Infrastructure in March of 2011 at a price of $14.40. Today, the stock trades at over $67. And since our initial recommendation over just over 10 years ago, they have paid over $20 per unit in income distributions to their, to their investors, more than paying back the original purchase price. We put out 27 individual buy reports on the company over this period, so it's a name that our clients are very familiar with. Now, on to recent news. The Brookfield infrastructure has been in a competition to acquire one of the largest energy midstream companies in Canada, Interpipeline. The initial offer was at $16.50 per share for Interpipe. Uh, this was opposed. This was back in February. This was opposed by management. They thought it was too low. It also resulted in a competitive bid uh, by midstream and pipeline company, Pembina. 
but Brookfield more recently upped its offer to $20 per share. This caused Pembina to withdraw. It also caused Interpipeline's board of directors to accept the offer. So it appears now that this deal will go through subject to any remaining regulatory approvals. The big question right now is how good of a deal is this for the shareholders of Brookfield Infrastructure, particularly considering the fact that Brookfield increased their bid from $16.50 to $20 per share. We're going to look at the numbers here. The full value of the deal is $16 billion. This is $8.5 billion for the equity and the rest being the assumption of debt. Brookfield has been pretty quiet on how accretive this deal is expected to be. I'm not surprised uh, that they're being quiet. When you're doing a competitive bid or a hostile acquisition, it's generally not a great bargaining position to brag about to the market about how great of a deal that you're getting. So they've been fairly tight-lipped. But we can look at Interpipeline's financials as it's a public company. Over the last year, Interpipeline has reported about $750 million in free cash flow and just under $1 billion in adjusted EBITDA. This was down from the previous year due to a weak energy market. On a valuation basis, this would put the acquisition at about 16 times uh, EBITDA on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis and about 12 times on a price to free cash flow basis. I would not consider this to be a particularly attractive valuation. In fact, 16 times enterprise value to EBITDA looks expensive to me, particularly for an energy infrastructure company in Western Canada and one that has had some uh, financial issues over the last year. But there are a few things working in Brookfield's favor here, and I do have a high degree of confidence in the company's ability to select accretive acquisitions. The first thing is that there's a strong likelihood that Interpipeline's cash flow is going to grow over upcoming years. 2020 was a difficult year for the company due to lower energy prices. Interpipeline also overextended itself with the development of its Heartland Petrochemical Complex project. This project carried a $4 billion cost. It was the largest capital investment ever made by Interpipeline. Heartland is expected to commence operations in 2022. I'm certain that Brookfield Infrastructure has factored future growth into the acquisition decision, uh, as well as potentially stronger energy prices. Another factor to consider is that Brookfield Infrastructure is not a particularly cheap stock itself. Last year, the company issued a new class of shares the symbol being BIPC, which are identical to the BIP.UN class, except that they have preferred tax benefits. The BIPC shares also trade at a big premium, which in addition to this low interest rate environment allows the company, Brookfield Infrastructure, to raise capital capital at relatively low costs. This is a good situation for holders of the BIP.UN class of units, which can be purchased at a cheaper valuation and offer a higher income yield. Income-focused investors can hold on to the BIP.UN units, which offer better value, especially when held in an RSP, and at the same time benefit from the lower cost of capital uh, that the company can derive from the BIPC shares. Finally, a lot of this comes down to Brookfield's management and their ability to select good acquisitions that will grow their free cash flow per share and income distributions over time. They have a tremendous track record in this regard. Part of the strategy is to identify assets where they can add value specifically. Eventually, these assets can be resold at higher prices and the proceeds reinvested. They call this their capital rotation strategy. Just as a recent example, on July 16th, 
Brookfield Infrastructure announced that it was selling its North American district energy business N-Wave for $4.1 billion. Brookfield Infrastructure made its first district energy investment in 2012 and subsequently developed the business into the largest district energy system in North America. Net proceeds to BIP to Brookfield Infrastructure from the sale are approximately $1 billion, and the company reports earning an internal rate of return of over 30% on the investments on the investment and a multiple up to invested capital of over six times initial invested capital. Overall, I'm optimistic that this is going to turn into a good deal for Brookfield infrastructure over the next few years, even though the valuation based on Interpipeline's current cash flow isn't really that impressive. We will get a more detailed update from Brookfield Infrastructure when they report their Q2 results, which should come out in mid-August. I'm certain they're going to go over the, the acquisition in more detail and what they can do with it over the next couple of years, including potentially how accretive it's going to be to the per share or per unit cash flow of Brookfield. Uh, we've always considered Brookfield Infrastructure to be a core long-term income growth holding. And we will put out another update when when the company releases their financial report in August. I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. But the, my main point here is I am very confident in the management team's ability to identify good quality assets that they can bring into their business. Nice. Yeah, that's a good segment clients should probably take a listen to too. Now, I have a question building off of this. Um, so, you know, essentially Brookfield is a large diversified company. Now, do you think adding an oil uh, asset essentially with Interpipeline and oil assets are generally trading at discounts? I would say maybe I'm wrong there. Um, but do you think that that could essentially make Brookfield's overall mar- multiple, you know, come down a little bit that it's kind of historically traded at? Is that so? It's possible. It's possible, and this has been a concern in the past mm-hmm. um, because the company has has increased its investments over the past several years in the energy midstream space in North America, and they've done that specifically because they saw good value, low valuations in that area. Uh, so one could be concerned that that brings the overall valuation of the company down. I don't think it is going to in this case, just because there's so many other facets of the business um, that are producing high quality cash flow. They're also when they purchase assets in the energy infrastructure space, um, they are purchasing assets that are highly contracted. Um, so there is good visibility in cash flow. This is not like a um, oil and gas producer where they're so commodity price sensitive. There's good stability and cash flow from these assets. You're, you're bringing it into a, a, an overall company that is, is well diversified globally in a number of different areas. Um, it's about 95% of their revenues are um, based on long-term contracts or regulated rates of return, about 75% of revenues indexed to inflation. So when you look at the, at the, at the full package of Brookfield, I think that you still have at the end of the day, in its entirety, a very stable company that is going to hit its targets of growing their their cash flow per per share and income distributions by about six to nine percent per year. And my thoughts on this are that part of this is that they want they they are eyeing that Heartland uh, petrochemical complex as as part of this deal and and a major part of growth. Um, and once again, just like they did with their district energy business, there is a possibility that they're going to develop these assets further, add some value, and then down the road sell it at a at a at a good profit. Um, at, in addition to generating cash flow from it um, while they own it. So when you look at you know we really can't um, 
we really can't undervalue the network effects in some of these companies. I mean, we call it a business model where you have a group of people, uh, a team of people, highly intelligent, skilled people that are able to really add value to certain situations. And this is something that Brookfield has been doing for, for many years. As I said, finding assets that are you know good quality assets, but where they can improve the value of that those assets, um, buying them, pulling that cash flow out, you know, putting some in to improve the value, selling it at a at a higher price, and then reinvesting the capital once again in other assets where they can add value. So um, I like the business. It's not gonna be a, a, a double digit growth stock every year. It's it's certainly not. But you know, they're targeting that six to nine percent growth on an annual basis. Uh, if they can do that, you've got the three point six percent current yield. You've got you know likely six to nine percent. Uh, income distribution growth on an annual basis if you can get 10 to 12 percent from this stock on average over a long-term period of time i think that that's a good good deal certainly excellent well i believe that it is time for brennan to talk about care rx take it away brennan it's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call your stock our take buy sell or hold Thank you, Aaron. So yes, CareRx Corp. This came in from Dave, who uh, is a longtime podcast supporter. He's usually shooting me emails. Uh, so thanks for this one, Dave. Um, so CRRx on the Toronto Stock Exchange, currently trading at a price of $6.22 and has a market cap of about $250 million after one of its uh, recent um, subscription receipt offerings that it uh, conducted. So CareRx is a provider of pharmacy services to seniors, homes, and other congregate care settings. Uh, the company has 20 fulfillment centers across Canada, serving over 52,000 residents in over 925 seniors and other uh, communities. So some key points here. On June 22nd, 2020, the company changed its name from Centric Health to CareRx and conducted a 20 for one share consolidation. So for every 20 shares that shareholders held, they would receive one uh, rather than those 20. So before the share consolidation, the company had approximately 289 million basic shares outstanding. But after the consolidation, uh, the company had about 14 million shares outstanding. So my big question after this consolidation and seeing how many shares that they ended up getting ballooned up to, is the company back or are they going to be back to their old ways of diluting shareholders? Um, so looking just in this year, uh, the company has done some share offerings. So January of 2021 this year, they issued 5 million shares for proceeds of about 21 million. Um, and then also in May of 2021, the company did a 12 point month. 12.5 million uh, share subscription receipt offering at a price of about $5 per share for gross proceeds of 63.25 million. And just for people that don't know what um, subscription receipts are, that's essentially offering um, current shareholders the ability to buy shares um, to basically protect themselves for, from uh, further dilution going forward. So taking both of these share issuances into account, just over a year since the consolidation of the company and its, outsta its outstanding shares are already back to over 40 million common shares, which isn't great. So what are they doing with the cash from these uh, share raises? 
Well, they have been making some acquisitions in 2021. Um, the first was Smart Meds. This was in April of 2021 for 4.5 million. This was made from mostly cash on hand. Uh, also in April, they made an acquisition of long, a long-term care pharmacy division uh, for 75 million. Um, with mostly cash and then um, in June of 2021 the acquisition of a few Rexel pharmacy group locations uh, for 3.5 million now looking at the company's recent financial results for Q1 of 2021 revenue increased about 47% to 44.9 million compared to the same period last year revenues in or the revenue increase was primarily a result of the remedies business acquisition which closed in the second quarter of 2020 now adjusted net loss for the quarter was approximately 3.8 million compared to a loss of 2.5 million for q1 of of last year and adjusted ebitda was up about 105 percent to 4.1 million or 15 cents per share from 2 million or 14 cents uh, per share for this same period last year. Now, you know, keep in mind, looking at the per share adjusted EBITDA, it really only increased, um, you know, one cent. So realistically, you can kind of see that dilution effect uh, that the company has been doing there. Um, so although overall adjusted EBITDA was up substantially, you know, per share, which is really is what matters, and Aaron's always, um, you know, uh, telling people that, which it is the truth, um, it really hasn't moved the needle too much because of that additional dilution. Um, now, if we do include the recent 62 million equity raise, the balance sheet does appear reasonably healthy with healthy multiples. And including the revenue run rates from the three acquisitions that I mentioned, uh, the company does trade with an estimated forward enterprise value to sales multiple of about 0.93 times, uh, which looks decent in my opinion. So to conclude, I like the business as it is servicing a growing and much needed segment in Canada as our population is aging and prescription deliveries are an essential service for care homes. Now, it does appear that management is making accretive purchases and essentially the company's strong revenue and adjusted EBITDA performance is primarily from these past acquisitions. However, investors need to keep an eye on the company's dilution going forward as the company increased its basic shares outstanding by over 150% since its share consolidation. Now, I'm not saying that the company cannot grow accretively while issuing shares, but it is much, much harder to generate shareholder value over the long term compared to using internally generated funds. So all in all, it is an interesting business and could and could potentially have some speculative value right now. But before investing, I would like to talk to management to get their outlook on organic growth and possibly an adjusted EBITDA run rate after the acquisitions. Uh, and as well, you know, if they're going to continue to dilute shareholders to uh, try to propel growth, um, you know, if they're trying to do that. I don't know. I, I don't love it. You know, you can look at that adjusted EBITDA per share. It really isn't uh, moving the needle because, you know, they're using uh, additional shares to try to grow. And it's really not allowing, um, you know, shareholders to get a bigger piece of the pie uh, in regards to earnings. You know, that earnings, each shareholder is just, you know, staying at that same piece of pie of earnings, essentially. And this is something that we see a lot from uh, quote unquote growth stocks where they're they're growing their revenue, they're growing their earnings, they're growing their, uh, if they have earnings, they're growing their adjusted EBITDA on an absolute basis, but they're not growing their per share cash flow, per share adjusted EBITDA. They're not growing, uh, sometimes per share values are actually in decline. And 
what we want to see eventually is a company. It's it's fine to if you if you source a, a good acquisition that's going to be accretive to finance that acquisition with shares or a combination of shares and debt. But we would also like to see some free cash flow in the mix as well. And if a company is out there buying businesses, you'd hope that they're going to start to you know produce enough free cash flow where that can at least be a component of the of the. Um, capital that they're using to make these acquisitions and that helps to reduce the dilution but it's um it's certainly a um it's certainly something that we see a lot and it rarely ends well when a company is just uh is just issuing lots of shares to do deals and isn't isn't doing this accretively perfect well aaron i think that uh you found a new gig as our pod or as our podcast host you know i think ryan lost the honor of uh of being the podcast host, I mean, if that's something that you're willing to take on. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I, I don't just know about kidding. that. Just kidding. I'm just throwing more shots Ryan's, at Ryan. Of course, which you should, as you should. Yeah. And in fact, not enough shots we're throwing at Ryan, but I suppose we want to we want to focus on the content as well. I appreciate the, the comments, Brennan. Your words are kind. Uh, I believe that this will conclude our podcast for this week. So thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, remember to to like, share, uh, comment on the podcast. You know, we, we appreciate the feedback. This is what helps us um, keep going forward and coming up with new content. And we will see you all next week. So until then, profitable investing. Thanks, everybody.